Welcome to Breadcrumbs, the podcast from WorkSync. Today's topic is centered around ways to stay compliant with labor laws. These laws are ever-changing, and it's the responsibility of the employer to stay on top of them. Today's guest is Beth Behrman, WorkSync's Director of Communication. Welcome, Beth. Hey, Kim. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Okay, let's jump right in. What are some things that employers need to be aware of when it comes to compliance and a workforce management partner? Well, as you know, uh, workforce management systems are important for compliance because they are the first line of helping to enforce policy. And as you mentioned, these laws are changing frequently. So I would say the most important thing to look for is flexibility and, and to have a workforce management system and a partner to work with that provide flexibility. You need a system that's easy to change uh, in ways that aren't hugely expensive uh, because things change. And you'll find that on a regular basis, you should be updating your system and your rules to keep compliant. Uh, one example that comes to mind is just at the end of October 2022, uh, an appellate court in California invalidated rounding policies. So employers have been rounding forever, but in California specifically, those policies have been chipped away with. And now they've invited the Supreme Court to weigh in, but it's very likely that rounding will go away in California and probably in the rest of the country too. So changing from a system that rounds employee punches or rounds employee time to one that doesn't should be easy and it shouldn't cost a ton of money to do. So that kind of flexibility is really important to have not only in a system, but in the partner and the vendor that you're working with to make these changes quick and easy and um, not burdensome from a financial perspective either. Um, And then secondly, I would look for... um, employee-focused features and a vendor that's really focusing on the employee experience. And, you know, you might wonder, what does that have to do with compliance? Uh, Well, in the United States, there's a growing trend toward consumer and employee privacy legislation. So this is kind of the next big frontier uh, and, and a whole new aspect of compliance And basically, there's two main obligations. It's to inform and gain consent. So informing uh, an individual about the personal information that's collected about them, how it's used, who has access to it. And in some cases, to gain consent for the use and collection. For example, in Illinois, employees have to give consent if the employer uses a biometric time clock. So having that baked into your system, working with a vendor who's forward-looking enough to be developing interaction at a time clock, to be developing interaction through applications, so that you're positioned well when those laws come into effect to easily be able to do that, to track acknowledgement of those kinds of policies and to gain consent. Those things are, are really important in that Employee interaction and employee focus is sort of the next um, frontier and the next way to judge. Are you working with a vendor who's forward thinking and who's going to be able to accommodate compliance changes as they come down the pike? 
So tell me, Beth, do you have any tips for how employers can stay on top of changing legislation? That's uh, that's something that we all work really hard at. Um, I think that it can be a real challenge, especially uh, for a international or a multi-state employer because you're dealing with so many different laws and regulations. Fortunately, most uh, payroll and HR folks are pretty good and they have some good resources. So there are um, a lot of professional societies out there that help their members stay up to date on compliance changes uh, that offer webinars and newsletters and, and proactive content about things like that. Um, if you don't have a good relationship with your employment attorney, if you don't have an employment attorney who's going to proactively notify you of your jurisdictional changes, that might be something to think about uh, changing. There's also a lot published on the news and in uh, employment blogs following an employment attorney, uh, a large practice uh, near you is a good way to do that. And I would also say that having a good partnership with a your workforce management vendor, so not just a vendor client relationship, but a real partnership. So you can learn what they're running into with other clients in the area, what trends they're seeing um, and new ways to use the system to most effectively maintain compliance. And I would add one more uh, thing about that is that there's the, the specialized practitioners, the HR and payroll people who need to stay up to speed, but then that needs to also flow downstream in organizations because frontline managers are often responsible as the first people dealing with compliance around, for example, FMLA or um, paying appropriately when employees work through their meals or lunches and things like that. So making sure that not only the HR and payroll people understand laws and understand uh, changes in compliance, but making sure that the frontline managers do is really important too. Okay. Um, Well, compliance is very important. Well, what happens if you don't comply? Have you seen any examples of employers not complying and dealing with the consequences? Uh, well, unfortunately, yes. I mean, I think that uh, for the most part, uh, rarely have we seen, if ever, have we seen an employer who's deliberately not complying. It's just going to try to cheat their employees. You know, there are bad apples out there and the Department of Labor and their press releases and newsletters likes to point those out. But for the most part, you know, employers are good people and they try to do what's right. It's just a really complicated scenario. So we don't see it as an intentional act, but what we see more often is just unintentional bad habits or a lack of understanding of the law that really exposes employers. And um, I would say that there's probably three areas that really cause a lot of problems. And they're things that the Department of Labor really looks for. And one is misclassifying an employee as an exempt employee when they should be non-exempt. So when they should be subject to minimum wage and overtime laws and they're misclassified, often just based on a job title. Just because you have manager or supervisor in your job title doesn't mean you're an exempt employee. You really have to look at the activities that the employee does, their 
authority and managing others and hiring and firing and things like that. So that's that's one area. Another is a, a classification issue again, and that is treating someone as an independent contractor, paying them on a 1099 basis, when the Department of Labor would treat them as an employee. And that has a lot to do with how much independent um, authority that the worker has to decide how tasks are accomplished, where they're accomplished, um, how much independent authority and, and how much investment they have in their own business, how many different clients they work for, things like that. So that's another way. And then and the third one that's very uh, an easy thing to get wrong is not properly paying overtime. So if you have employees who work at different jobs and earn different rates, if you pay piece rate, if you do shift premiums, if you do perfect attendance bonuses, things like that can make figuring out what the rate for overtime should be a very complicated process. So that's another one that's easy for uh, employers to fall afoul of. And it really takes just one disgruntled employee to cause a problem because most wage and hour investigations come about because an employee makes a complaint. Um, some the Department of Labor investigates, they target low-wage industries, industries that have a history of, of problems, uh, but most of the investigations come based off an employee's complaint at both the state and the federal level. Um, and those investigations are really costly. So uh, it's something that um, trying to do it right, being open with your employees about how they're paid and how their pay is calculated, uh, encouraging the interaction between the employee and their supervisor, um, and, and fostering that kind of an open relationship with the employees so their first recourse isn't to go to the Department of Labor or to an attorney who might take a case and try to turn it into a class action. I mean, these are all important things. You mentioned investigations are costly. What are those costs associated with the investigations for these kinds of things? Well, that's a, that's a good question because a lot of times people think the cost is just what penalties you might have to pay or back wages you have to pay. But that's really a small part of it. So these investigations take a long time, um, usually at least two months, three months on average, up to six months. Um, and they involve a lot of requests for records uh, and other things. So let's step back. An employee makes a complaint. As the employer, you get a call or a visit from the Department of Labor. They don't have to tell you what they're investigating. They don't, they will not disclose who made a complaint. That's that that's private. But the hard part from the employer's perspective is that they won't necessarily tell you what the complaint was which can leave you open and exposed to investigating a lot of different things. And these laws are so, can be so complicated and so difficult to comply with 100% that the Department of Labor estimates that over 70% of employers aren't compliant fully, uh, which means that if they look hard enough, odds are they're going to find something. Um, so part of the cost is 
just the scope of the investigation. The advice that most attorneys will give is that if possible, you know, ask those questions, try to get a scope of what the investigation is and try to get that scope in writing. And then through the back and forth of the process as they're collecting information, as the employer, you can go back to that scope and say what you're asking for is outside the scope of this investigation. So trying to get a definition of scope and trying to keep the investigation within that scope is one way to try to narrow the investigation itself and reduce all the costs that are involved. When you are investigated, you will be asked to provide all of your uh, payroll records and your timekeeping records. You'll be asked for all of your policies surrounding how people get paid. You will maybe be asked for job descriptions if they think the investigation might be going toward a misclassification. Um, You will be asked to give the Department of Labor some place to work in your office while they're on site. You will be asked to provide certain employees for interviews with the Department of Labor. So you can imagine what this does with the rumor mill around the office, with employees talking to each other and getting anxious about these kinds of interviews and what that does to productivity. So there's the cost of complying in terms of pulling all of the records and the information together. There's the cost in lost productivity of all of the employee interviews and uh, the disruption to the normal course of business. Um, And then there's also, of course, the cost of um, any attorneys. You know, you probably want to get your employment attorney involved, if not to guide through every single step of the way, then at least to consult with you on what you should be doing. that's expensive. And then there's any, ultimately any uh, back pay penalties and other things that are involved. And then if it gets publicized, there's maybe a hit to your reputation. So it may have a bigger impact on future business. So it's it's an extremely uh, costly thing. And that's what we're talking just Department of Labor. The other uh, thing that, that related to these kinds of investigations are potential lawsuits. Um, pay practices tend to be applied across the board to a big group of employees. If an employee is disgruntled and feels that they're not being paid properly, they might not go directly to the Department of Labor. They might go to an attorney to file a lawsuit. Attorneys will take lawsuits only if they think they can get a class a class action or a collective action, collective action against FLSA or a class action for a, a state-based law, because that's when they get the big payouts. Um, and those can be even more costly <laughs> and definitely will require a big uh, legal bill on your part because you'll end up with a lot of time for your legal defense in in a a lawsuit like that. So um, it's something to avoid if at all possible, for sure. Yeah, I agree. So it sounds like investigations are costly. They should be avoided if at all possible. Um, What's coming down the pipe that our listeners could possibly prepare that might trigger this kind of action? Well, let me talk a little bit about the the three points that I mentioned, and then we'll get into what's coming next. 
So uh, there are these areas, misclassification of exempt versus non-exempt, um, 1099 or independent contractor classification and overtime. These are areas that the Department of Labor has been focusing on for a long time, and it's for good reason, because it's easy to make mistakes in these areas. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about misclassification. It's very easy to write a job description that may classify an employee as exempt because they have a lot of independent authority. They're making substantial decisions that contribute to the success of the business. They truly are, uh, according to the job description, fall into that uh, executive or administrative exemption, the white collar exemption. But over time, the job people do varies from what their job description actually said, the way it was originally written. So one of the things that employers can do is to routinely audit their job descriptions. So maybe every year or maybe every other year. It's sitting down and talking to the employees and finding out, does, does this job description still accurately reflect the work that you do? Find out how it differs because it will differ. If you have a job description and you never update it and five years later, the Department of Labor comes in, they will find out that the employee does not do exactly what their job description initially said. Conversely, you might find the opposite. You might find somebody who started as a non-exempt employee, but has taken on a lot more responsibility, is actually supervising other people, is doing more of the uh, creative work that might be exempt and, and can be evaluated the other way. So it's, it's not always bad news. It's just good practice. Uh, the same thing goes for 1099. A lot of employers and a lot of nonprofits are guilty of this tend to think or organizations tend to think that they don't have the resources to hire employees. And so the way they handle that is to just 1099 because initially they think this is going to be a very short-term situation. It turns into a very long-term situation. It turns into a situation where somebody's providing an essential role, your primary business, doing the work that you do as an organization for you exclusively 40 hours a week. That's an employee not an independent contractor. And that will uh, get you every time. So just as you audit employee job descriptions on a regular basis, you should also be auditing your independent contractor relationships to make sure that they still qualify. And the good news on both of these is that the Department of Labor itself has a lot of information on their website about how to make those distinctions and using their own recommendations, their own checklists um, is a really good way to go about that. You could also have an employment attorney help with those kinds of audits as well. If you have the resources to do that, sometimes it's easier to pay somebody else uh, than to devote the time and take your own resources away from their, their other uh, responsibilities. So um, it's definitely worth doing. The other thing is overtime. Um, a lot of folks just pay straight time and a half off somebody's base wage. Um, and that's okay if the employee never gets a shift differential, if the employee never gets a any kind of a bonus, um, what's called a non-discretionary bonus, meaning that you get an extra 20 bucks 
a week if you show up for every shift, a perfect attendance bonus, meaning that if the the, the company or the organization meets certain uh, revenue or production goals, everybody gets a bonus. You know, those are non-discretionary. There's a policy, it's measured, employees get bonuses. Those kinds of bonuses, the shift differentials, the piece rate payments, um, all need to be factored into and averaged into the rate that's paid for overtime. So typically that'll be a higher rate than the employee's base rate of pay. And getting that calculation correct um, is difficult in some situations. And that's another area that it's easy for uh, attorneys to go after. In certain industries, we see this. Um, and it's easy for the Department of Labor to go in and check. Um, if there's one piece of advice I can give, if you're going to bonus your employees, do it on the percentage of wages because that will take into effect overtime rates already and you won't have to go back. If it's a quarterly bonus or an annual bonus, you won't have to go back and reconfigure or recalculate overtime for all of those past periods, which is another way that employers often make a mistake is they'll give a bonus on a quarterly basis or they'll give a bonus on an annual basis. That's a production bonus, a non-discretionary bonus. And they won't go back and reconfigure overtime for every single pay period and pay the employees that uh, corrective amount for every single pay period. Um, if you do a bonus based on percent of earnings, uh, then that overtime calculation is already incorporated. You've, you're, you're set uh, on that. It's much easier. But most employers, unfortunately, don't do it that way. Um, so another thing to look for uh, going forward, and I would say this is something that's particularly for uh, the restaurant and hospitality industry, is uh, tipped employees. The Biden administration rolled back some of the changes that the Trump administration made very late in their tenure, which made it much easier to determine whether an employee was eligible for what's called a tip credit. So any organization and in a number of states, the majority of states, tipped employees are um, allowed to be paid a lower base rate as long as the tips they earn bring them up or over minimum, the standard minimum wage. Um, there are a lot of new rules there on when that's permitted and employees who perform non-tipped work in addition to their tipped work. So for example, a server, a, a waiter or waitress at a restaurant who also fills salt shakers, replaces condiments, rolls, silverware, and napkins. Uh, those items aren't tip-producing activities. Um, so can an employer take the tip credit for the time an employee spends doing that? And it's becoming more and more difficult to answer that question, yes. It has to be for uh, less than 20% of time. It has to occur at less than 30 minutes at a time. And think about the nightmare of tracking that. Um, it's, it's very tough. So that's an area that uh, we're looking for more specific and better advice from the Biden administration. 
And we are anticipating that that's going to be an area where compliance is going to be very difficult. So um, the, the tip credit is, is uh, I think, going to become a focus of uh, complaints and lawsuits come, going forward. It sounds like having a great workforce management partner is really critical here to make some of these challenges easier. What's some advice you would give to someone looking for a new workforce management provider? Well, one thing that I would suggest is that um, you should know exactly what you're looking for. And what I mean by that is that in general, some very general questions, you know, do you pay overtime correctly? Do you calculate the tip credit correctly? Of course, the answer is going to be yes. Um, it's only when you get into the, the very minute details that you can uncover those challenging things that some vendors will have more difficulty with. So this comes into play, particularly if, for example, um, you're a multi-state employer. A lot of states around the country and different localities within states have, uh, for example, paid sick leave laws. And if you have employees in different states in different cities that have these laws, you're are going to have to, uh, you want the capability of being able to calculate that uh, accrual of sick time and the rate at which it's paid differently based on where the employee works. So having a system that not only has the capability to calculate correctly, but also can calculate different employee uh, rates differently depending on where they work and being able to handle a lot of different calculations for different groups of employees is really important. Um, so interview your vendors carefully. Go through those scenarios, different sick time accrual based on different locations, um, bonuses, tipped employees, uh, appropriately handling, uh, for example, in California, if employees miss a lunch period, they are uh, paid an hour of pay. They're paid a penalty payment. Um, make sure that that can be, first of all, tracked whether uh, lunch is missed or not. Tracked whether an employer, an employee has waived the lunch rule because they want to work through lunch so they can leave earlier, for example. Uh, and calculate any penalty that's owed. Having that to be reportable, documented, calculated properly is going to be very specific to you as an employer on where you are, the laws that apply to you, and, um, and how complex your particular situation is. So know what you need, be very specific, walk through the scenarios with your vendor, and even have them demonstrate that they're capable of complying with that is very important and will get you a long way toward automating compliance and making your life easier. That was awesome information, Beth. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, if anyone wants additional information, please visit us at our show notes and worksync.com. Beth, thanks again. I hope to see you again in 2023 to talk more through this. Thanks, Kim. It was great to join you and I hope to be back as well.